Are you looking to fine-tune? Whether for your business, your job, your team, or yourself, in each episode, we will be discussing different ideas and opinions using real-world examples to help you see opportunities, innovate, and succeed. Hi, it's Corby Fine, and welcome to Fine Tune. So I've had many different, not only jobs, but careers in my life. As many of my listeners know, one of those segments of one who's done everything from selling Viagra to running a digital bank. But somewhere along the line, I, I found myself in the healthcare space, not just from the selling Viagra component, but advertising, marketing, brand building, really thinking about the use of data and marketing and consumer behavior into how do you how do you help grow the healthcare industry. And along the way, I had the pleasure of working with my guest today, Simon Smith, who also happens to be in my neighborhood of all random things. Simon is someone who's been in the healthcare arena for many, many, many years, and, and he'll talk about his background. But he's currently the chief marketing officer at a really interesting organization, BenchSci. He oversees all of the marketing efforts, commercial marketing, product marketing, employment brand, and apparently it's a great place to work, but he can talk about that, communications events when they can happen, etc. He joined very early and has helped grow the business on all facets, employees, users, the scientists that are in the platform, which we'll get into a little bit as well. Before BenchSci, he's had some amazing roles, uh, a really big healthcare agency click as the SVP of strategy, lots of communications and writing and content production in the healthcare space. He can go into it, but basically, Simon, healthcare aficionado, a marketing aficionado, welcome to the podcast today. Thanks, Corey. Uh, yeah, we do live pretty close to each other. One day we should do this in person when that's possible again. I, I think the last time I actually saw you in person was in the grocery store line <laughs> and uh, and we were catching up. So that might have even been pre-binge side. It's been a while and it's great to be here. Well, I appreciate it. So why don't you give everybody, including myself, a, a better understanding? What is BenchSci? Sure. I, I'll give the, the, the high-level view, and then I think really to explain it, I'll need to talk about the problem we're solving. But at a high level, what we do is help scientists make better decisions in their research by leveraging machine learning to extract insights and knowledge from unstructured scientific data. So our goal with all of this is to bring new medicine to patients 50% faster by 2025. That's what we're aiming to do. And how we do that is by helping scientists run more successful experiments. And to do that, we have to deploy uh, machine learning technology. So I hope that gives it a, at a nutshell. Really what we're trying to do is help get new drugs to patients faster. So would that insinuate, and let's come back to your, let's maybe define the problem of why you even exist, that there are issues, challenges, and roadblocks in getting medicines to the public like myself? Yeah, absolutely. So for anybody who's not familiar with it, there's a, a real productivity crisis. There has been for years in the pharmaceutical industry. And they've even given it a name, which is E-Room's Law, the opposite of Moore's Law. So if everybody, you know, Moore's Law, 
every 18 months, the amount of transistors you can get for the same price doubles. And in pharmaceutical R&D, it's the opposite. It's like every 18 months, the price of getting a new drug to market <laughs> doubles. It gets more and more expensive. Uh, and you see numbers, I think anywhere from 1.5 billion to 2 billion to get a new drug to market. And many of them don't ever recoup uh, that cost. So there's a, a productivity crisis. And then you're like, well, what's, what are some of the reasons for that? And you, you can look at, you know, there's a number of reasons it's getting harder to develop new drugs because a lot of the low hanging fruit has been picked and so on. But one of the problems is that it takes a, a lot of experiments in preclinical R&D to take a drug from a concept to a human. You have to do experiments in cells, experiments in tissues, experiments in mice, determine what side effects this might cause and all. There's a tremendous number of experiments. And from our work with large pharma companies, we know that most of those experiments don't add anything to getting that drug to patients. So I'd say it's, it's probably about 80%. And there's various reasons for it. Some of them aren't reproducible. Some of them, that because of the, of the reagents that they use, they're the wrong reagents. So the results aren't useful or they're irreproducible and so on and so on. And so that's the problem that we're tackling is that between identifying a good drug candidate and getting it into a human, you have to run hundreds, if not thousands of experiments. Right now, most of those experiments don't add anything. And we believe we can compress that down so that you can run 20% of the experiments and thereby save a tremendous amount of money and a tremendous amount of time getting a drug into humans. So now, correct me if I'm wrong, you guys aren't actually involved in the lab. You're not running the experiments. You're taking the data as the output and, and then analyzing. Is that right? So, so maybe where do you fit in that journey of thousands of experiments, of which, to your point, 80% are essentially not really useful? Yeah, so... So really, there's probably multiple points, but the primary one would be right now when a scientist is planning an experiment. And so when they're planning an experiment, they need to determine which reagents they're going to use, which reagents and model systems. So that might be, you know, what, what animal model should I use to study this drug? What antibody should I use to measure different uh, protein expression levels? Even, you know, what, what type of experiment should I run and so on? And so how they would typically do that, prepare for this is go to Google Scholar or PubMed and do a bunch of searches related to their target or the disease area. Let's say they're studying coronavirus, they might go and type in coronavirus and then look up hundreds, if not thousands of papers. And within each of those papers is a bit of information on how they should run their experiment. Okay, what, you know, what, what antibodies have other people used? What types of experiments have they run? And what animal models have they used? And so on. Um, and that's a tremendously time-consuming and error-prone process. So doing that, they still have to go through the papers and try to figure out what's been used. And then they'll typically buy multiple. So they might buy three to six different antibodies and test them all. Uh, and the difference is with BenchSide, they can just go type in what experiment they're trying to run. And then based on this, the platform's understanding of the entire medical history of successful experiments, it'll say, you know what, here's what we, re we basically hear the, the best things for you to use. And now that's a, a much faster, uh, more effective process for planning an experiment. So it seems like every industry is trying to tap into the notion of leveraging all of the data and information, applying, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning, the taxonomies of the terms. You know, you said something interesting, like the entire history of the published world of medical science literature, one, a, a pretty big volume, but two, 
it's pretty niche, right? This is not something that the average person walks around understanding the lexicon. So how how different is this in terms of an AI ML kind of a, of a strategy or experience than let's say, you know, more traditional conversational AI where you're looking at how do I reduce call center calls and automate things with bots? Like this isn't a chatbot on Facebook that you and well, maybe you, but I'm not gonna go on. <laughs> when you think about that, you know, the the business, the planning, the hiring, like is there something that's a secret sauce here, or is this just really an application of existing technologies and capabilities to a really niche sweet spot? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot in that question to unpack. I, I think I'm gonna tackle a couple of things at, at different points here. So I think the first one is that, yes, for sure, this is a niche area. It's biomedicine. So it's all of these uh, scientific, you know, biological experiments related to human health, let's say. So very, very niche. But that niche is a huge, a huge part of the economy. So upwards of 10% of the economy is, of GDP is healthcare and growing, growing faster than inflation. Uh, and also be, it's just a massive problem, like a tremendous amount of money, as we see with, let's say, the coronavirus, R&D. So much money is invested in R&D. If you can even make that 10 to 15 or 20% more efficient, the upside on that is massive. So it's niche, but it's also really important to all of our lives and a, and a very large part of the economy. In terms of the approach and how we do it, maybe I'll talk through what that looks like, and then we can compare that to other industries. So for us, there's really three parts to this. The first is, all right, let's get the data that we need to, that we really need to understand. And that comes from multiple places. So there's a lot of open access published literature in places like PubMed Central and so on. We can get that. We also make partnerships with scientific publishers like Springer Nature to get all of their papers as well and other data that they have. And then we look at other sources like preprints, patents, and one of the things we've begun doing with our customers is getting their internal data as well. So large pharma companies have electronic lab notebooks, PowerPoint presentations, lots of biological databases, clinical trial databases, and so on, and we can also get that. So now if you're imagining we have like terabytes of just biomedical data, some structured, some unstructured. And then to understand that, what we have to do is use uh, these many, I'd say probably, I'm going to get this wrong, but probably over 100 machine learning models that we've had to develop internally to analyze text and images, so scientific figures as well as text. And to make those, it is a matter of having a large team of PhD biologists who can label sentences and images in order to create these proprietary data sets we have with like millions upon millions of data points to train very specific machine learning models to go over these data sources and then pull out different biological entities and their relationships. Then we take that and we map it in a way that's queryable. And then from that, we provide an interface to the scientist that's super user-friendly. Most scientific tools are not. Uh, we spend a lot of time on design and working closely with scientists. Like our product team as well includes scientists and and so it's scientists building for scientists, creating the, the tools that they want. Your last comment was like, well, how does this differ? So one, one thing I think is that um, in a general interest area, or in let's say conversational stuff, there's a lot of general data out there. And there are a lot of natural language processing models that aren't specific to science. And they're not really up to the task of science. And I'll give you just one example is like, 
a single protein or gene can have 20 or 30 aliases. And sometimes those aliases can be common abbreviations. I mean, I think there may even be a protein that's like A-N-D. And so if you just use these non-science specific NLP tools, they can't make sense of science because it's just so niche and there's so many aliases and there's different ways of phrasing things. And a sentence in sort of science lingo might mean something different to a conversational AI that's trained in a different domain. And so it's, it's got to be very, very, very specific to the field. Totally get it. And the thing that actually stood out to me the most in, in that description was really interesting. You talked about it's still critical to design a really simple user interface and sort of experience, even for the user who happens to be someone who's fairly versed in the complexity of what they're trying to research. It's kind of like, let's build the simplest UI for the most intelligent scientists in the world when you know, often we can't even get it right on checking out of an e-commerce flow, buying some stuff for the house. So I think there's there's something to be learned there. Um, and it would be something of, you know, interest for the average UI and designer to kind of understand, well, if you can make it simple for the complex user, how do you make it simple for the simple user? So when you think about that and you think about who is that target customer, you talked about, you know, the the researchers who were logging in using, doing their, their queries and understanding the terms that they're looking for. Um, but, but where does this fit in this ecosystem? I mean, who is the target customer? There's researchers, you mentioned big pharma, you mentioned government and GDP and efficiencies. Who pays to play here? Yeah, it's 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 interesting because as you noted in, in healthcare, it's, there's a lot of stakeholders. So our primary end user, the person whose life we're trying to make easier is a scientist. And that is either a scientist in a drug discovery organization, pharmaceutical or biotechnology, or in an academic lab. And that could either be a government lab or at a university or other similar institution. So those are our end users. And that's who we're trying to make sure we build the product for. But in terms of the impact, that's different. And so the, the people who pay for this, we make it free to academia. And then in industry, it is paid for from the pharmaceutical or biotechnology company and its impact within the organization or what they're looking for it to do often determines who's going to pay. So there's a there's a benefit to bench side, let's say, on procurement because scientists are buying fewer, better reagents, which is saving millions of dollars a year in not wasting hard costs. There's also a, a benefit to research productivity. So the R&D department or the, the, the VPs, let's say, of, of R&D are also looking at, wow, this is a great operational benefit. Scientists are happier, more engaged, and more productive. So then they're also interested in, in that investment. I think where things are going for us is that as we have multiple benefits within an organization, and there's a recognition that BenchSide can transform an enterprise's R&D in general, the level at which we engage with companies keeps going up. So whereas it might have been earlier with directors in R&D, and then it goes into VP in R&D, and now we have conversations that often reach the C-suite, because there's an increasing interest in deploying machine learning-based solutions, and because BenchSci has a history of demonstrating impact. And so I think one of the things in, I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent here, but one of the things that happened in the AI space drug discovery space, let's say over the last three years, is that there's just been a huge explosion in a number of companies. 
And because of that, in healthcare in particular here, so pharma companies get pitched on these tools all the time and very few of them get traction. When you have a tool that gets traction and delivers on its promise and it's able to show quantifiable cost savings and productivity improvements, that changes the game. And there's a smaller subset of those companies. And so then you know, you are, we're very lucky. Our customers come to us and say, okay, what else can you do? How else can we use this technology? Because they are looking to deploy ML, but there's just so many companies, they're looking for the ones with a track record. Yeah, I, I totally get that. So if you didn't exist, the reality is the customers just, there's not a lot of options or, you know, you did drop a little line in there that says there, there's been an explosion of sort mm -hmm. of, you know, players in the space. Who, who are you competing with? Because when I look at, you know, the investment portfolio of who put money and backing behind you, there's some heavy names there, you know, not the least of which is, you know, Google. Mm -hmm. So what's going on in the space and, and, and where else are you seeing opportunity? You don't have to name competitors, but, you know, and maybe it's a bit of direction for where you're going, but when heavy hitters and large investment firms are putting money into this space, maybe what's next without giving up your roadmap? Maybe that's the way to ask the question. Sure. Yeah, I can talk about a little bit the landscape where we fit in and, and where we're hoping to go. I think in the AI drug discovery space, you can bucket companies into a few areas. So one is there are companies that are using machine learning to try and discover novel biological targets. So they're looking at let's say even uh, oncology, oh, let's look at breast cancer. What are some novel things happening in biology that we can determine from machine learning that people didn't know before, which will give us new drug targets? And part of that's because of there's just been so much more data coming out about genomics and proteomics and metabolomics, all these different areas that you just cannot understand any other way than using machine learning. So that's the drug target bucket of companies. And then you have another group of companies which is trying to either repurpose existing drugs to solve diseases or generate or optimize new uh, compounds to solve diseases. So that's the, the repurposing and generative bucket. And then you have companies that are trying to optimize the clinical trial process. So once you get a drug to trial, how do you design a better trial, recruit patients, optimize the process, and so on. So out of all of that, there are not a lot of companies that and of course, I'm, I'm going to be biased in saying this, but I do monitor the landscape. There aren't a lot of companies like us that are saying, well, we're not really trying to help you find new biological targets or generate new drugs or optimize clinical trials. But in all of those things, you have to run experiments and we're going to help you run better experiments. So you'll move more quickly from having that novel target to testing that novel drug and getting it into the clinic. And that's where we play, is that the, the spaces in between that are really, really important. In terms of competitors, there are other companies out there that have a more general purpose biological knowledge graph, let's say, but they're not solving specific problems. And we're coming in and saying, the specific problem we solve is that we're gonna help you run more successful experiments and we've designed our tool to help you do that. And that's really where where we've been able to uh, to win. And you mentioned, you know, Google's one of our investors, F Prime, which is part of Fidelity, one of our investors, Inovia. They have other healthcare investments as well, and other healthcare AI related investments. But even in, within their portfolios, we occupy that niche of experimental design. And then in terms of where we're going, yeah, I can't reveal details, but what I can say is that. 
because in order to do what we do, which is help scientists plan better experiments, we have to understand biology at scale from unstructured documents. So if you can think of the other things you can do with this bottoms up understanding of biology that will help scientists run better experiments and pharmaceutical companies run more successful research programs, that'll give you an idea. I mean, if you could think of all the other areas that, that you might run into challenges with an inadequate understanding of biology at scale, that's what we're really focused on. It sounds somewhat like a data scientist's fantasy on one hand, <laughs> but I assume at the same time then, you know, and just, you know, one of my, one of my last questions for you is, so there's obviously a lot of complexity in what you're doing. There's tons of challenges, both on the economic side, the, the logistics planning ecosystem of pharma and government and, and regulatory components all the way through to, you know, the time sometimes that it just takes to get these things done, whether it's a deal, a contract, the research in and of itself. What do you see as, you know, maybe one or two of the biggest obstacles to really knock it out of the park and make you your investors, your customers, and the broader world maybe as an outcome, you know, a better place. What are some of those challenges you're facing? Yeah, it's, so we've, if you would have asked me this question, let's say three and a half years ago, when we had just really launched a beta and begun commercializing, a lot of the questions would have been around finding product market fit and whether or what the business model was going to be. And I think we've been fortunate over the past three and a half years to find product market fit. Scientists love the platform, uh, figure out the business model. We are a SaaS company and then, you know, and investors believe in what we are trying to do. So we, we've overcome a lot of that. Where we are now is really, I'd say there's two primary challenges. One is that biology is really, really, really complex. And so as we expand, our use of our platform, and I'm not a, a scientist, I, I spend a lot of time with scientists, but you can see what some of the challenges are. For example, it's not so clear that you just, you have a drug and it, it increases expression of a particular protein and that's it. You have all these feedback mechanisms. So increasing levels of one protein affects the levels of another protein or inhibits this protein. And in a totally different context, it has a completely different effect. And, and so it's really hard to tease apart biology. And on top of that, try to interpret that from structured and unstructured data at scale. So I think that's one big challenge ahead of us is, is just that biology is complicated. I think the second one, which may or may not be surprising, is hiring fast enough to keep pace with our growth. So we're growing 100% year over year in terms of headcount, maybe even more now. Um, and when you're small, that just means adding 10, 20, 30 people. But as you get bigger, it means adding 150, 200 people and in very specialized roles. So for us, I see, and it's one of the things that I'm focused on with my team is how do we accelerate our ability to hire amazing people globally now because we're remote first and we're we're not so concerned with where people are. We just want to find the best talent. And what's happened in the pandemic and post-pandemic is on the one hand, because we're remote first, we can hire anywhere, which gives us access to a global talent pool. On the other hand, a lot of other companies are thinking the same thing. So whereas we used to be able to hire certain talent in Toronto without much competition, now, some of the biggest players 
Google, Microsoft, Facebook, Amazon, the usual suspects are also hunting in our backyard. And so I'd say that's probably the, the second biggest challenge right now for us as a company. So again, both data scientists fantasy. One, great jobs and opportunity to learn and contribute and do something interesting. Uh, that's the hiring plug. And at the same time, work on an incredibly complicated problem, which is mm -hmm. biology, genetics. I mean, just like everything to do with the science of who we are and how things interact with us. So on that, I have one, one last question, and I hope you can answer it. So you've been at this a while, three and a half years. The platform's obviously been used by thousands of researchers and scientists. Is there anything that stands out that you can recall or think about that was actually an outcome, whether it was a, wow, a finding, something that showed up in the data, something that got to market because of the research that you can say, wow, we contributed. There's a tangible benefit. Is there anything that kind of stands out as like, wow, we were part of that thing? Yeah. So I think that we're, we're very lucky that we collect we solicit and we get unsolicited feedback from scientists on literally a daily basis. And so I can't talk about specifics. That's one of the challenges of working in a regulated or very competitive space like pharma is that it's hard to talk about specifics. But we do regularly hear from scientists, let's say, that they were trying to do research for months and they were inhibited because they couldn't find the right reagents. So those are the necessary tools like antibodies to measure proteins and so on. They couldn't, couldn't find them. They spent months trying to figure it out. They tested a whole bunch and then they went on bench side and they found one right away. We regularly hear stories like that. So I would say that based on what we hear from scientists, the general sentiment is probably that, you know, for every time a scientist uses bench side, they're saving a week to three months off their research, which is something we hear pretty frequently. I think the other one for us is where we see situations where companies haven't used BenchSci and have publicly had issues. So there are examples with COVID where scientists, based on selecting the wrong reagents for their vaccine trials or their vaccine preclinical experiments ended up having to cancel clinical trials because their data was was based on a faulty early preclinical R&D experiment, which was due to a faulty reagent. And so we know that, you know, when we go into our platform and look that up, we can see that we would have been able to help them choose the right reagents. So it's it's pretty frequent. Uh, and, you know, we, we have customers, I mean, who, if you look again at COVID, most of the companies that have developed vaccines are also benchsci platform users. I guess I can leave it at that. We'll we'll make uh, we'll make inferences and interpretations from that. But needless to say, I wait for the infographic with the uh, amount of that. <laughs> um, but listen, it's 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 fascinating. I know a lot of my listeners are in the data analytics AI space. This is probably an area they don't really get to touch or think about a lot because, to your point, it is somewhat specialized. But, you know, again, Simon Smith, thank you for being with me, Chief Marketing Officer at BenchSci, empowering scientists around the world to essentially run more successful experiments and really help all of us at the end of the day, you know, live healthier lives. So I really appreciate you being with me and look forward to seeing you in the neighborhood and at the grocery store. <laughs> yeah, well, a grocery store in person at some point in the near future, I hope. Yeah, I do want to just one maybe final word here is that we, as I mentioned, we are really looking for great people. And Corby, you, you mentioned 
data analyst and so on. They may not have knowledge of biology. Most people at BenchSci, apart from the scientists, haven't come from a biology background. They're just really passionate about the mission. So don't let a lack of biology knowledge stop you if you're interested. Well, we will make sure to post the link to the company's hiring page when we post this. So again, thank you very much for being with me and I do look forward to seeing you soon. Great. Thanks, Corby. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to Fine Tune. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can connect with me on Twitter at CFine, through LinkedIn at CorbyFine, or visit my website, CorbyFine.com. Fine Tune is produced by me, Corby Fine. Thanks for listening. <laughs>